Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, we're talking with Patrick Hayes about his new book, The Civil War Diary of Reverend James Sheeran, CSSR, Confederate Chaplain and Redemptionist. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. I wonder if you could start us off by... Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, we're talking with Patrick Hayes about his new book, The Civil War Diary of Reverend James Sheeran, CSSR, Confederate Chaplain and Redemptionist. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Well, I am uh, a northerner, so I was born in Massachusetts. I am I am hardly one to have sympathies with the Confederacy, so... Uh, uh, engaging with Father Sheeran has been uh, something of a challenge for me, but an eye-opener. Um, I have been uh, schooled uh, in the ways of church history going back um, maybe a decade or so. Um, I work as the archivist for the Redemptorist Fathers. Uh, they are a religious order of Catholic priests and brothers uh, founded by St. Alphonsus in 1732 and uh, their order came to the United States in 1832 to serve mostly German Catholics in the country. Could you explain uh, exactly what the Redemptorists are? Because they loom large in Sheeran's life, of course, and they are distinct from uh, you know Catholics in a few ways. And I was wondering if you could explain why it was that you know the ways in which they they differed from other different. Uh, you know, uh, like better words, schools of Catholicism, and and, and also uh, what what it was that that drew Sheeran to them. Sure, Redemptorists when they first arrived, uh, they were invited over uh, at first to minister in Detroit. There was a cluster of Germans there uh, who lacked a German-speaking priest, and so the Bishop of Detroit invited the Redemptorists who were in Europe to come to the United States and establish a mission. The Germans were um, growing all the time, uh, mostly in urban areas along the coastline, but also in the interior of the country. But by the time the six Redemptorists arrived in New York and made their way out to Detroit, the bishop had died. And so when when they arrived, the administrator of the diocese had no idea that they were on their way, and so suggested that they go up into the Michigan Thumb to check on the uh, the native peoples who were there to see if there were any Catholics left. Um, the Redemptorists said, "Okay, we're we're missionaries. Let's go." So up they went, and uh, they first ministered to the Chippewa, uh, those Catholics that they found uh, in Upper Michigan, and they did this for about six years before they started wondering 
if this was really the purpose of their ministry, they were thinking more uh, along the lines of returning uh, to Austria, where they came from. But, uh, as fate would have it, um, one of the bishops in the United States, Michael O'Connor of Pittsburgh, had a German church, German-speaking church, that needed German-speaking clergy. And so he made an offer to those redemptorists who were um, ministering in Michigan to come out to Pittsburgh and start the first redemptorist parish uh, of St. Philomena's in Pittsburgh. And gradually they spread throughout the country, wherever there were Germans, uh, mostly in urban areas. So they um, began parishes in Baltimore, in New York, in uh, Buffalo, Rochester, uh, so on and so on. And gradually their numbers increased. They had a number of vocations. And eventually uh, they took in even an Irishman like James Sheeran. What was it that drew Sheeran to the Redemptorists as opposed to uh, some other aspect of Catholicism? Well, these priests had a, a, a real gift for relating with people. Uh, St. Alphonsus was known as uh, uh, an excellent pastor, um, always going to people who were sort of on the margins. But they also had a very rigorous uh, theology behind them. Uh, even today, St. Alphonsus is known as uh, the patron saint of moral theologians. Uh, and, you know, moral theology can be very tangled and kind of a thicket. Um, but when uh, Sheeran encountered them, he was a married man. And his life prior to this encounter, I think, is uh, worth exploring a little bit. Um, so Sheeran was born in County Longford in Ireland uh, in January 1817. Um, we don't know when exactly he came to North America, and we don't know who accompanied him or what his point of entry was. We think it may have been through Canada. Uh, but we figure in his early teens, he made the journey, whether alone or with someone else. And eventually, as a, as a young man, he ended up in New York City. And there he got himself uh, more or less uh, an education, not, not only uh, on the street, um, but in the church. Uh, so much so that the local pastor at St. Mary's Church on Grand Street in Manhattan employed him as a catechist. Um, gradually, he became older, he matured, and um, he met a woman, a woman named Margaret. We don't know her last name, but they got married, and eventually they had three children. Now, the story of uh, Sheeran's family life is uh, a little bit complicated, but uh, it's also very sad. Um, in order to make his fortune, he decided to take his bride out of the city and into a place called McConnellsburg, Pennsylvania, which looks an awful lot like County Longford in Ireland. Uh, very lush and green, but also... Uh, uh, heavily, heavily populated with Catholic folks, most of which were Irish. So he decided to stay there for uh, several years, and he had good neighbors, um, 
including uh, the Hughes family. And I mention them only because uh, one of the boys in the Hughes family, uh, John, grew up to be the Archbishop of New York during the Civil War. So he was familiar with, uh, with prominent Catholics, even though they were sort of uh, still in their infancy. But McConnellsburg was kind of a farming community, and Sheeran had greater ambitions. So by this time, he took his bride and his youngest daughter, Isabella, or actually his oldest child, Isabella, and the family removed themselves to Monroe, Michigan. And it's in Monroe that Sheeran first encounters redemptorists. Um, these priests had taken on a little country church and were chaplains to a growing community of women religious. So these, uh, these sisters, uh, the sisters' servants of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, um, were a beginning order, but they grew in great numbers. They had several thousand over the course of uh, uh, the last century and a half. And their, their primary function was to be school teachers. So in Monroe, there was a little schoolhouse, and the sisters taught in the schoolhouse. And quite um, on a lark, and at the suggestion of the redemptorist pastor, they hired this young man uh, to teach in the school. Um, now, at this time, say 1850s, um, Sheeran's family was growing, number one. Um, Isabella was followed by John, and then a toddler, Sylvester. And unfortunately, Sylvester did not survive uh, his toddlerhood. Uh, he died very, uh, very soon after being born. Uh, but also during this time, um, being Catholic in Michigan was not all it was cracked up to be. Uh, the Know Nothing movement in that state was uh, very active. And uh, as an Irishman with a very short temper, um, when you assault someone for their beliefs, um, Sheeran was uh, the kind of person who could respond in kind. And so not only was he the local school teacher, but also kind of a lawyer and advocate um, he wrote editorials against Know Nothings. He lobbied in the state legislature against their um, pieces of legislation that would curb Catholic education. And so he really made a name for himself, um, which I have to say really endeared him to the redemptorists who were um, the owners of the school. This part of his life is really interesting. I was wondering, uh, did this push him both toward uh, – uh, taking up the cloth himself, you know, basically that by defending the faith as often as he had, he became more invested in it. And did it also end up pushing him politically towards the opponents of the Know Nothings, the Democrats, which at this time were the pro-immigration uh, uh, party that tend to be more welcoming the Irish? Well, certainly as an immigrant himself, he had sympathies for um, people who were fleeing Europe uh, for various reasons. Um, either war or poverty or both. Uh, and the fact that America presented itself as being uh, open uh, 
not only to uh, uh, new populations, but to ideas. Um, this is uh, this is something that really appealed to Sheeran and something he wanted to participate in. Uh, however, it, it's uh, it's a bit tricky to say that he had uh, a vocation other than to be a good father. Now, after the death of his youngest child, Sylvester, unfortunately, his wife passed away. So Margaret is now out of the picture. And that suddenly left him uh, as a widower with two growing children, Isabella and John. So as they uh, were going through their their own maturation, Sheeran asked his local pastor, you know, do you have any additional work for me so that I can help support my my family? Um, and frankly, he he sort of eased himself more and more into church work, which does not pay well. <laughs> so so um, he, uh, he was told by the pastor, you know, it seems to me that you have a vocation that we're just not prepared to meet. Let the children grow, care for the kids, and then we'll see where we are in a few years' time. So this is exactly what Sheeran did. He he was a very good father uh, to his youngest ch- to his two children. Um, but by the time John was uh, around thirteen years old, uh, he had reached a point where he could be placed uh, in a boarding school, and so he was packed off to uh, Saint Vincent's Abbey in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, where the Benedictines have a large abbey in school. Now, almost immediately after he arrived, he died. Uh, poor John, uh, the records of his life are so sparse, we, we only know anything about him through Sheeran, um, in part because the Benedictines in Latrobe have had a series of fires in their abbey, and most of their records from the 19th century have gone up in smoke. Uh, that we don't even know where John is buried. Um, so that left Isabella. And Isabella, uh, probably uh, his his favorite child, because he, he knew her uh, the longest and the best, uh, she was placed with the Immaculate Heart of Mary sisters in Monroe. Um, initially, they, they accepted her as a student, and gradually she found her own vocation as a sister. Unfortunately for Isabella, um, the very first assignment that she was given was to go out to Pennsylvania to start a new mission there, and within three years, she died too. So now, uh, Sheeran was completely free uh, of family responsibilities. He could finally enter into religious life himself. And when does he do this? He becomes a redemptorist in 1855, um, and actually he has a very good novice master in a man named Francis Silos, who is now a candidate for sainthood. Um, Silos shows up uh, in his life uh, only uh, periodically, but uh, the excellent training that he received from this holy man uh, made him an excellent priest. 
He was ordained in 1858. And where was he first assigned? Well, he goes uh, on his first assignment to um, a parish in uh, the Irish Channel in New Orleans. And this parish is kind of a unique place because um, it's actually three parishes in one. So the Redemptorist controlled uh, an area called Ecclesiastical Square, and this this uh, very large territory included uh, a German church, an Irish church, and a French church. And the German and Irish churches are on the same street, just across the street from one another. So Sheeran joined Father John Duffy, uh, another Irishman, and the first pastor of St. Alphonsus Church. But they all lived, both Irishmen and Germans, they all lived under the same roof. Um, But I have to say, Sheeran was not fond of Germans. So when when Father Duffy was transferred, um, he came up to Annapolis periodically um, over the course of his career, when he was transferred, Sheeran was the only Irishman left in the house, and he really had a hard time. So that um, by 1860, when uh, the Archbishop of New Orleans came calling, asking for volunteer chaplains for the Civil War, Sheeran's hand shot up immediately. He said, get me out of this house as soon as you can. Um, it didn't take very long for the uh, for the transfer to take effect. I think the Germans kind of had it up to their own eyeballs with Father Sheeran. And so um, uh, very early in the war, Sheeran went off to Camp Pulaski um, outside of Baton Rouge uh, for his training and assignment. So what was his role in the army during the Civil War? And, and, and how exactly did he conceive of his role? Because it's a very fascinating uh, issue, this idea of religion. And as you've outlined it, here's a person who, whose association with the South is a relatively recent one. And yet here he is, and this is something that comes across very clearly in his diary, has really embraced this cause and, 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 and seems rather quite passionate about it. Oh, definitely. The, um, the parish where he got his first assignment, St. Alphonsus in New Orleans, St. Alphonsus is the, the Irish church and was an enormous success uh, almost from the beginning. Uh, the Irish uh, who built this church, um, they, they, dug the foundations themselves, they, they put in sweat equity brick by brick, and they really built a magnificent structure. So that by the time Sheeran arrived there, uh, the Redemptress had very little work to do, um, but the, the most pressing demand was to build uh, a school. So Sheeran was given the job of building the first boys' school, for the Irish children. And I have to say, when you care for the children of families who are trying to make something great, you are one of them. 
they, they adopt you. Um, so Father Sheeran had a great love of St. Alphonsus and of New Orleans. And more broadly, um, he really respected and honored all of their hard work because it was for God's glory. By the time he was a, a Civil War chaplain, um, it's kind of ironic, he was assigned to a Polish regiment. Um, that, that Polish regiment did not uh, last very long. The, the 14th Louisiana was kind of an amalgamation of um, uh, this Polish unit, but also several Irish units from, um, from New Orleans, including his own parish of St. Alphonsus. So he knew a lot of the men who volunteered to serve, and he became their parish priest. So he views the, you know, these units as his parish, and he travels with them throughout the war. And his interaction with them, which is one of the things that, that really flavors uh, his diaries, is one in which they are respectful of him, but at the same time, they treat him in many ways as an equal. Oh, yes. And, you know... Irishmen, they give as good as they, they get. Um, so some of the more humorous episodes in the diary include one where uh, uh, Father Sheeran comes upon a group uh, late at night. They're, they're sort of relaxing, um, and they're, they're trying to pass the time by playing cards. And so Sheeran's stature, he's only about... Uh, we think maybe 5'2", five, 5'3". Five, He's a short little guy. Um, and if he was dressed in his clericals, he would have been dressed in black. And if he had a, a hat on at all, he would have had a black beretta. So coming upon a group of men around the campfire, uh, all dressed in black, he, he was sort of um, stealth personified. So he came up behind them, and he noticed that all of these men had a considerable pot of money in front of them. Now, card playing was forbidden in camp. And so all Sheeran needed to do was creep up behind them, snatch the money, wag his finger, and say, boys, for your penance, I'm giving this money to the orphans. <laughs> So, and, of course, the, the natural response, any good Irishman knows, it's, yes, Father. You beat us to it, Father. <laughs> and yet they didn't seem to hold that against him, at least not as we, as we read in his diary. In fact, there, was, there seemed to be some, uh, no small amount of affection for him among many of the men. You know, that's true. And uh, spiritually, that, that kind of rapport went a long way. Um, he had it publicized in the Richmond newspapers that the, mo the money that he swiped from these uh, unsuspecting soldiers uh, actually went to uh, the Sisters of Charity Orphanage in Richmond uh, as a Christmas present. So um, the only thing that Sheeran asked in return is that the orphans pray for the, the health and welfare of the soldiers. So he seems to have a kind of a roving commission in a lot of ways because he, there's, he does a lot of travel. Oftentimes you, uh, you know, you, you have, uh, 
presented passages where he's riding on his home on his own on a horse. He definitely listens to the men around him because, as you describe, sometimes they they end up saving his life and prevent him from uh, you know being shot at. But okay. but he really does have a uh, he's not in a, a specific chain of military command, and so he has a lot of latitude that you wouldn't necessarily expect someone who is serving with a army, you know, at war. Well, in, I have to say, um, having become intimately acquainted with this man, um, he, he's, uh, oh, I'll just lay it on the line. He's very arrogant. And an example, a classic example of this is um, uh, related to his travels or his ability to travel. So you couldn't move anywhere in wartime without a pass. Um, your, your commanding officer was constantly being hounded for passes to go here or there. And for a chaplain, it was uh, especially difficult because sometimes uh, you had to go where uh, passes could not be issued. So he had become so fed up with the process that one day he uh, he explained to another priest colleague of his, uh, look, let's let's just go get the ultimate pass. So he marches off to um, an encampment where Robert E. Lee, uh, the head of the Confederate forces, was at the time planning out the Battle of the Wilderness. And so... You have to go through several layers of officers in order to get to Lee. But this little priest managed to, like a battering ram, run the gauntlet and finally approaches Lee's tent. He barges into the middle of a meeting and demands a pass, demands a pass. Um, He's very explicit about uh, how he phrased this. And at first, Lee was very taken aback, didn't know who this man was or how he got there. Um, And probably after uh, a little while of listening to this uh, diminutive priest ask for a pass, uh, Lee probably said to himself, I better just give this man what he wants so he can get out of my hair. (laughs) So um, Lee capitulates. He grants him the uh, universal pass. Um, but not without a little caveat. He said, you know, Father Sheeran, not even my my highest-ranking officers get a pass like this. And not to be outdone, Sheeran retorts that um, as a Catholic priest, even I outrank you generally. So he got the pass, and off he went, chuckling under his breath. Uh, but that that kind of arrogance, um, I, I think, served him well, uh, in part because he used the pass to do uh, some fairly amazing things um, under some very dire uh, circumstances. One of the things that he had another sort of pass in a way, which was his profession, because as you described, sometimes uh, he would be, you know, through his interactions with the church, be interacting with uh, people who were involved with the union. 
I, I was thinking of this one uh, passage in particular where he's in Maryland and he goes up to a, uh, I think it's a nunnery, and this, the the uh, the head sister comes out and talks to him and basically says that I can't really talk to you anymore because we have union officers here, and if I talk to you for too long, they, they might think I'm uh, I, I'm conspiring with the enemy, and 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 how it and, and I thought that really captured the degree to which that there was a fluidity that uh, his uh, occupation as a Catholic chaplain gave him. Uh, that oftentimes uh, transcended or complicated the straight uh, Union Confederate boundaries that we oftentimes read about when it comes to the war. That's right. His own view of the the conflict is um, in itself complicated. Here he is, uh, uh, someone who was placed in New Orleans um, and ministered... Uh, by all accounts, very well uh, to a certain ethnic group, and almost none of whom had any political leanings um, other than, you know, they, they were desirous of freedom. For Sheeran, his own politics were, were sort of um, taken up in the question of states' rights. And so for him, uh, the Civil War was not so much about um, slavery although I will confess some of the passages related to um, uh, people of color are less than kind and, frankly, uh, quite bigoted. But in the idiom of his day, he, he was less concerned about uh, the status of slaves and more concerned about the preservation of the Union. And this, he thought, uh, could only be done through a, a kind of scrupulous observance of the Constitution and the rights of states to self-determine. The, uh, the love for uh, people in the North is hardly in evidence. And so when he encounters uh, prisoners of war from the, the Union side, the Federals, um, he's constantly trying to convert them to... Uh, you know, his own way of thinking. Um, but even beyond that, when when uh, certain bishops or other Catholic clergy um, present themselves as being uh, pro-Union or, or even pro-Confederate, um, Sheeran is, is not so much inclined to talk politics with them, but he is under the assumption that they're, they're people of goodwill. And they can be persuaded. Um, you find this with an encounter um, between Sheeran and a, a prisoner of war uh, who asks him if he knew Archbishop Hughes' own views on the war. Now, Hughes had by this time become the Bishop of New York and was staunchly pro-Union. This is a former neighbor of his from uh, his days in Pennsylvania. And so Sheeran uh, was like, yes, I, I know quite well John Hughes' uh, own position, but he's wrong. Now, naturally, I, I think uh, if the Archbishop of New York knew of Sheeran's feelings, he would be uh, you know, equally vociferous in his denials that he was wrong, but um, 
it just goes to show you that the uh, the clergy knew one another's views quite well. Um, they read the papers just like everybody else. And yet, unlike so many Protestant denominations, and for obvious reasons, the Catholic Church never split. So they oftentimes had to cohabitate and engage in a level of cooperation that was very much at odds with the climate of the time. You have so many schisms happening uh, in terms of culture, in terms of society, that ultimately the political schism. And yet you have a ha- you have a Catholic Church in which you do have the big tent in which both views are represented. Yeah, and it's it's actually no small miracle that uh, Catholics after the war really were uh, a kind of bomb on the Union. Um, you know, there were several Catholic slave owners. Um, I, I don't have to tell you of uh, the, the recent um, apologies that. Uh, even those in the border states had to make. Um, Georgetown University comes to mind immediately uh, for owning slaves. Uh, those those sort of Catholic institutions that had uh, a very uh, real involvement uh, with the politics of the day, um, they had to let bygones be bygones. Uh, it, it was uh, uh, sort of incumbent upon them um, to be bridge builders. Um, in, in a way, one wonders if there were no Catholics in the country, whether the Civil War would have um, continued or uh, resolved itself in the ways that it did. Um, of course, that's uh, it's kind of uh, it's sort of strange sort of speculation, but um, uh, I, I think Sheeran uh, most definitely uh, especially in his uh, last experiences in the war, um, would have found uh, a way to forgive. I'd like to take us back to that, the, the Sheeran's experiences during the war, because he was uh, a chaplain uh, with units that were assigned to uh, the Army of Northern Virginia. And so he was very much at the forefront of some of the most uh, storied uh, battles of the war. And you have these passages in which he is not just commenting upon his labors as a uh, chaplain, but he's also describing the battles as he witnessed them. And I was wondering if you could speak a bit to that, you know, how it was that he came to have such a, uh, a, a, a fortunate place and uh, and those and those experiences of, of being there at places like Second Bull Run, like uh, Gettysburg, like Sharpsburg, and so forth. Well, his unit, um, the 14th Louisiana, saw considerable action. Uh, and one of the unique things about this this group of men, uh, which came to be known as the uh, the Louisiana Tigers, or, or sometimes the Irish Tigers. Um, so called for their ferocity in battle. The reason that they all um, gained this reputation was in part through Sheeran's ministrations. Um, There is a a kind of theory, and it was espoused actually by Jefferson Davis, 
that chaplains didn't amount to a hill of beans. They, they more or less got in, in the way of uh, uh, actual soldiering. But in Sheeran's book, um, and several of his men attest to this, the more you prepared uh, a person for, um, for the prospect of their own imminent death, the easier it would be for them to engage the enemy. It sounds a little strange, but um, the, when the conscience isn't bothered, uh, when you know that you have um, only your, your own self um, and the enemy between you and God, um, and it's thanks to your local priest, well, that makes for a very dangerous enemy. Uh, they have nothing to lose and everything to gain. And what's curious about uh, uh, Sheeran's presence among the Louisiana Tigers you have lots of uh, Louisiana units, but also other states that had considerable casualties or deserters, but not Sheeran's unit. Very few casualties and almost no deserters. And again, in Sheeran's book, it's because he provided the sacraments to his men. And that takes up another uh, large portion of his diaries, which is his description of giving mass, uh, administering last rites, tending to the spiritual needs, not just of the unit, but of all these other people that he comes across in these very wide-ranging uh, uh, travels that, that he undertakes as a result of, of, this, of this service. This is actually a kind of interesting aspect of the journal itself. Um, the journal, I, I have to say, is... Uh, it's kind of a remarkable document. It's a two-volume, um, 1,656 pages of manuscript, uh, which we've condensed into 600-plus pages. Uh, the, the fact that he's able to, uh, to move around the South so much uh, and take in so much of the activities going on among ordinary citizens uh, in the midst of the war I think is uh, one of the unique features of the diary. It, it'll really open up some uh, new avenues of research. And I, I'll give you a, a particular example of that. When he was uh, uh, kind of on hiatus between the winter of 1863-64, uh, he encountered a man named Gleason, who he knew from New Orleans, uh, but who was uh, serving in the uh, Confederate legislature in Richmond, Virginia. And Gleason had his family with him, including a daughter. And Sheeran um, was quite chummy with uh, this man and so uh, suggested uh, to Mr. Gleason that if he would consent, Sheeran would take the daughter on a road trip. And they went through with Gleason's consent, they went through several southern cities. So um, in addition to Richmond, they went off to, uh, to Charleston, to um, Savannah, Dalton, Georgia, um, down to Mobile, and then back to Richmond, all within uh, the space of a few months. But they got to witness what life was like in these areas 
And the, the curious thing for me is, what about the children in the diaspora? Uh, here you have a young lady uh, in the company of this priest, and everything was totally above, above board there, um, traveling around the South in the midst of the war. What an education for that young lady. Um, but that kind of uh, social history is, is usually lost when, when you look through uh, much of the Civil War literature. Um, we don't usually get the perspective of what it might be like for uh, uh, teenagers, for instance, uh, in their experience of the war. But Sharon sort of lets that, um, lets that through. Uh, it's a very unique window on what life was like back then. We should add that this is not the first time that these diaries have been edited. But as you describe, the uh, previous uh, efforts have really been uh, much constrained. They don't really capture the uh, the, the depth of, of Sheeran's uh uh, passages they, they don't really they're, they're they are much more pruned down and 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 don't give quite the same flavor that you have in his text he made some interesting choices choices in terms of preserving a lot of his original spellings and so forth you make them clear for us as readers but they really do give a, a, a sense of of, of sheer as as a person as an author uh, on his own and, and not just somebody who's who's you know a, a, a you know, a, a very detached observer. Well, Father Sharon, he is a, a kind of special individual. Um, when his diary was first um, unearthed, uh, this was in the 1950s, some of the redemptorist priests who had known that the diary existed um, asked the provincial of the redemptorists at the time, you know, might we publish this? And the provincial had no objection, but now the question was, who do we get to publish it? So by 1960, they had landed on a very good Civil War historian, a Jesuit father from Georgetown University, uh, Father Durkin. And uh, Durkin took one look at the manuscript and knew the value of it, but he said, no one will read the whole thing. We have to excerpt it. So um, the Redemptorist said, that's a good idea. We're going to leave it in your hands and uh, run with it. So in 1960, Father Durkin published his, uh, his excerpts with commentary. And, you know, if you go through those excerpts, they're, they're great little nuggets. And Father Durkin's commentary is very lively. But you get the sense that... Uh, there's more Durkin in there than there is Sheeran. <laughs> so uh, um, about 10 years ago, uh, Redemptorists were gathered around a, a, a meeting of people who study the history of Redemptorist life in the United States. And a few of them said, you know that uh, Durkin version of the Sheeran journal, maybe we should publish the whole thing. Well, Ten years later, um, and after several meetings about it, and one little addition, we, we think that Father Sheeran was perhaps dyslexic. And, and so uh, yours truly had to edit maybe 40,000 or so um, 
individual places in the journal where there were kind of uh, obvious errors and even not so obvious errors. So what you have now is a very clean text, but also one um, that's the whole thing. It really lets his voice um, shine through. And my commentary is very uh, minimal. So uh, that was our plan. You know, get the whole thing out and uh, let people judge for themselves. You've already cited a few uh, episodes that are recorded in the diary uh, that illustrate particular points about Sheeran and his experience of the war. I was wondering if there were if there was another one, uh, a, a passage or uh, an event that is described over a few passages that was of a special interest to you or that you found uh, to be a moment which was especially revelatory about Sheeran and his experiences with the war? You know, I, I did. Um, as I mentioned at the outset, I'm from the North, and uh, my people fought in the Civil War, uh, just as Southerners fought for their cause as well. Um, the difference, though, in the way I was taught was we were the victors. Um but going through this diary, I have to say that no one was really the victor um, because people lost their lives. And it, it was not lost on Father Sheeran in saying so. But uh, throughout the diary, you get the impression that this very haughty, arrogant uh, priest, one who could really get away with just about anything, uh, had finally gotten his comeuppance when he was uh, packed off as a prisoner of war uh, to Fort McHenry in Baltimore. But just prior to that, he did something that has sort of redeemed him in my eyes. Um, after uh, one of the, uh, the last battles that he witnessed, uh, he asked his commanding officer if he could cross a road into enemy lines and minister to the wounded on the other side. And this commanding officer, knowing Sheeran's reputation, said, Father, if you can get across, you're welcome to go visit our men, but um, I cannot protect you once you cross that road. So he was issued the pass, off he went, and almost immediately after he Across the road, he was captured. He immediately told his captors, boys, I'm a redemptress priest. Take me to your commanding officer. So he went to go see General Wright. And Wright was not uh, a small player in the war, um, but granted Sheeran the permission that he sought to go minister in the hospitals to the wounded. And Sheeran did... Um, ministry to both sides there, not only the Confederate, but also the Federals. Um, and while he was in enemy lines, he encountered a man named James Mulligan. And Colonel Mulligan uh, was kind of a famous Catholic. He had started a Catholic newspaper in Chicago. But uh, when Sheeran encountered him, he was laying mortally wounded. And he stayed with him uh, during the course of his last moments. He gave him the last sacraments, and he stayed with the body until 
Colonel Mulligan's widow arrived on the scene. And Sheeran admits that even this, uh, this enemy, who he knew to be an enemy, was nevertheless in his last moments uh, a very pious and upstanding man. And I think that kind of change of perspective of going from uh, someone who's the enemy and who should be reviled to someone who is just like me, someone trying to be a good, upstanding person, that really opened my eyes to uh, the possibility of repairing uh, what had been uh, a disastrous four years. So if he had this pass, uh, how did he end up uh, incarcerated? (laughs) Well, um, the pass only went so far. (laughs) Uh, Word leaked out that uh, there was a gentleman, a priest, who was administering um, uh, aid and comfort to the enemy in the federal hospitals. Well, word got back to uh, General Philip Sheridan that this was going on. And General Sheridan um, was no fool. He had already been burned once by a Jesuit uh, who was sort of playing double duty between uh, uh, the federal side and the Confederate side. He was not going to let another priest get the better of him. And so when he learned of Father Sheeran's activities, he had him arrested and sent to Fort McHenry. So I, the, the amazing thing to me about his incarceration at Fort McHenry is the fact that he was able to write letters and get them out of the prison. Um, as a prisoner of war, he was stashed in a horse stable. And so he writes from stable number one, Fort McHenry, Maryland, um, to his friend and former classmate, James McMaster. Now, McMaster was an editor in uh, New York. He ran the New York Freeman's Journal, a Catholic newspaper. And McMaster was incensed that Sheridan, who was also Catholic, could incarcerate a Catholic priest simply for doing his job, uh, especially with the kinds of characters that were also considered prisoners of war. Uh, And the fact that he was incarcerated in a horse stable uh, and totally susceptible to the elements. This was in the winter of 1864. McMaster was uh, was livid. He printed Sheeran's letters in total, uh, about four of them, each time offering a commentary about how uh, uh, the Union was going to fall simply because... It had incarcerated uh, the best of the South. So in any case, the, uh, the PR that was generated over this episode uh, w- was just too much for Washington to bear. Somehow word must have gotten to General Sheridan to release Father Sheeran before he caused any more damage. And so in the, in the last week of December... Um, a series of conferences between Sheeran and Sheridan take place so that in early January, 
he's kicked out the door. Now, by this time, poor Father Sheeran had uh, uh, had his health broken and begged for money uh, for the ferry, uh, which he used to cross uh, the, the bay in Baltimore uh, to the nearest Redemptorist parish. And there he collapsed into the arms of one of his brothers. You uh, conclude the uh, excerpts of, of, of the diary with uh, a passage from uh, April 24th, 1865. And I, I think it's a great inclusion because it really does reflect, I think, very nicely the fact that while uh, Sheeran's health may have been broken and his cause may have been lost, his, uh, his uh, views about the war had not changed. And and I because I, he, he's describing uh, how uh, he, he's in he's uh, setting out for New York and how New York is uh, in mourning for Abraham Lincoln and he's rather contemptuous of this but there's that great line in there that about how uh, that the remains are now passing uh, to his former home in the West which it would be well for the country had he never left. Right, he, I have to say. Um... Uh, Sheeran was no fan of uh, President Lincoln, and the fact that um, the funeral bear that brought him up the East Coast uh, and then out to Illinois, Sheeran's same path uh, uh, tracked exactly with um, Lincoln's funeral cars. So in Philadelphia, for instance, where I am now, uh, the the church where Sharon stayed just for a couple of days um, as a way to recuperate, but also as a kind of way station on his way to New York. Uh, the, the church where he stayed, the steeple was draped in black bunting. And so Father Sharon, witnessing this, um, thought it was a kind of desecration of the church. Uh, he, he made his politics well known, um, and he was more than happy to leave Philadelphia for New York, where he found much the same thing. Hmm. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Well, sure. Um, a couple of things. The parish of St. Peter the Apostle, where uh, the shrine of St. John Newman is located, Newman is the first redemptorist saint in the United States, the first male saint, um, former bishop of Catholic bishop of Philadelphia. Um, St. Peter's is undergoing its 175th anniversary this year, and I'm writing the parish history. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating project. Um, lots of hands contributing, but uh, I, I'm, I'm sort of shepherding this through, and that'll be out in the fall, we hope. But then uh, a more long-term project is uh, uh, something not uh, not redemptoristic uh, solely. Uh, it's the biography of Patrick Cardinal Hayes of New York, um, who I am not named for, nor am I a relative of him. <laughs> um, but Cardinal Hayes was um, uh, the Archbishop of New York in the 1920s and 30s. And uh, that has been a fascinating project because you get to see the city transform itself um, in, in very interesting ways. And it's 
Catholic population had a, a huge hand in that. Well, I hope we can have you back when your uh, biography of, of Cardinal Hayes comes up, because it sounds like an excellent, a, a fascinating project. Well, there's no end to church history, so uh, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm glad to make my, my little contribution. Well, it's, it's, it's not as little as, you, as, as you're making it out to be. You're, you're, it's an excellent uh, diary, and it really is, as you say, it's, it's, it opens up a fascinating window into part of the Civil War that you don't oftentimes think about. Well, I'm glad you could have me on. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, and have a wonderful day.